KSW 83, Cage Warriors 155, and ACA 158 all go down this weekend as well as the UFC event. And fighter profiles for every single fighter on those upcoming cards can be found on the MMA Fight Archive. There's only one spot left for the Pioneer tier which will save you 25% off on the lifetime of your membership to the service. And you guys can take a 7 day free trial to try it out first even if you are not sold on what the concept of it is. We've already have over 30 members sign up for this service so I appreciate every single one of you guys but a handful of them have not taken advantage of the Pioneer tier which again saves you 25% off the lifetime of your subscription. So make sure you guys take that last spot if you want it but even if you don't $9.99 a month is not much to ask especially if you do all your own research and predicting and breaking down fights this is one spot where I promise you will uh very much appreciate the information that's available to you there especially direct links to past fights for all of these fighters so it makes your researching even easier oh wait there are even professional people within the mma space at the highest level that use this service to provide you guys the best information possible to break down upcoming opponents or even check up on their own opponents as well that's why i am the best in the game at finding tape and ensuring that you guys get the best information and all the links you can possibly get to do the best research on these upcoming fights make sure you guys check it out link in the description below or the top comment i promise you guys will not be disappointed now let's get into the episode Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOT. And this week, we're going over UFC Vegas 74, headlined by a flyweight matchup between Kai Kara France and emerging prospect Amir Albazi. We got a couple other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card in the co main event. We got Alex Bruce Leroy Caceres going up against Daniel Pineda, Jamie Malarkey taking on a short notice newcomer uh that is a weird name to bring up out of all the other names that are on the card but uh fun other fights jim miller against jared gordon so uh very much looking forward to the ufc's return after having an off week even though there was road to ufc last week for any of the diehards that took advantage of that offering from the ufc but we are back to regularly scheduling programming regularly scheduled programming for the ufc with 13 straight weekends of events coming right up so strap on in folks i do want to quickly apologize for the delay in dropping this podcast i normally drop it uh, monday afternoons but uh you know i had a little bit of trouble in terms of kicking it into gear getting back into the headspace to do the researching and do the fights and the last thing i want to do is give you guys a half-ass product uh half-ass breakdowns and uh, you know really not fully focusing on the breakdowns and then just you know going through the motions i didn't want to do that i want to get back into the right headspace to drop these breakdowns for you guys and took me a couple more days than i wanted it to but here we are on wednesday getting this breakdown out for you guys and i'm sure that you guys are appreciative just to see the breakdowns and i'm glad that uh, i'm able to do that for you guys but next week we will be back to the regularly scheduled drop time of monday but instead of doing it for noon i found that it's a little bit more uh, effective to drop it at 3 p.m eastern so that the pst guys can get it around noon as well so instead of dropping at noon eastern it will be mondays at 3 p.m eastern you guys can count on it check on it uh on monday and that's when you get the next one which i believe is going to be for ufc 289 
All right, before we get into the breakdowns, quickly recapping the previous UFC events, predictions, the lock of the night play comes through with relative ease with Anthony Hernandez putting Mr. Edmund Shabazian through the ringer. And I loved all the action coming in on Shabazian throughout fight week because I kept doubling down on my guy Anthony Hernandez knowing that he would be able to get the victory. And that's exactly what happened. Happy to cash that ticket there. Dog of the night does not come through with Vanessa Demopoulos. Uh, you know, producing a goose egg there she wasn't really able to get much of her offense off i thought she'd be a little bit more successful in terms of getting the fight to the ground and controlling caroline there but that was not to be had and demopolis ends up taking a loss there so in terms of the lock of night lock of the night record we are now at fifth fifth sorry 45 and 13 for a 78 percent hit rate on this year and then for the dog of the night 28 and 30 for a 48 percent hit on the year again still close enough to that 50 percent mark that we're profiting even if uh you know we're are losing two more than we have actually won throughout the year that's how the dog game goes reminder the patreon is the best place for you guys to find breakdowns or at least get the first dibs on all these breakdowns uh link in the description below we go over all the ufc events pfl bellator cage warriors which is going to be dropping this week as well so make sure you guys check that out uh and we also cover lfa so all of that stuff is found on the patreon appreciate everybody we're back up to about 200 patrons as well appreciate everybody for uh showing the support again very cheap but it's also uh, very informative as well. And that's where you get access to all my breakdowns first and foremost, as well as my lock of the night prediction that I'll be dropping for you guys as well. Link in the description below. Make sure you guys check that out and obviously check out the MMA Fight Archive. But I did a great plug for that at the beginning of the show. If you don't know what the MMA Fight Archive just is uh skip to the beginning of the show and check it out i promise if you do your own research and predicting and breaking down fights that is that is a very crucial service that you will need to make your life a lot easier also if you've already signed up for the mma fight archive drop a comment below and let people know how uh, how much you enjoy it and how informative and uh crucial it has been to your own studying and preparations for upcoming mma events all right uh, and last thing I want to plug, obviously, shout out to Godzilla Wins, giving me a home to drop my written articles. Uh, I'll be dropping my main event article today, and all of these links will be in the description below. Check it out if you guys want to see what my prediction is for the main event in written form, as well as what I think the three best money line bets are going to be for this week. That will drop on Thursdays as well. You'll find the link to that in the description below as well. Shout out to Godzilla Wins for hosting your boy over there. All right, without further ado, let's get right into the breakdowns. Going down in the light heavyweight division to kick things off here, we got 16-5 and Philippe Linz going up against 32-9-2 Maxime Grishin. Let's start things off on the Philippe Linz side here, who's riding a two-fight winning streak with wins over Marcin Pracnow and Ovin St. Pru. That is a complete rebound from the two losses that he had to start his UFC career off in 2020 with a decision loss to Andre Arlovsky and a knockout loss to Tanner Bozer. However, he decided to drop down to light heavyweight, which is seeming to be a good move thus far at 37 years old considering the two-fight winning streak he's on. We're talking about a former PFL heavyweight champion who earned a million-dollar paycheck back in 2018 after he disposed of Josh Copeland in the fourth round of their matchup, but he had bigger goals in mind when he signed to the UFC, hoping that he could quickly get a title shot considering the championship that he held in a previous promotion. However, a two-fight losing streak will definitely knock you down a couple pegs as it has but a two-fight winning streak now for Philippe Lins surely puts him in spot in the light heavyweight division to be on the track of being a contender 
His opponent this weekend is a very uh, experienced and veteran of the sport, Maxime Grishin, who's coming into his 44th professional MMA fight this weekend at the age of 39. Just going through his record, you can recognize so many names from all over the world in terms of mixed martial arts, just showcasing how much experience and how much legit experience Maxime Grishin has over his tenured career. He's been exchanging wins and losses since coming into the UFC with a loss to Marcin Tybura to start his career in the UFC to a win over Gadzimurad Antigulov where he finished him in the second round. He followed that up with a loss to Dustin Jacoby but last time around had a dominant performance against a pretty muzzled William Knight. Maxime Grishin is a great all-around fighter in terms of mixing his striking with his clinching and his grappling. But like I said, his experience is always going to be a huge advantage that he has when he steps inside the cage. It's very difficult to deal with for a lot of fighters in terms of the size that he brings to the light heavyweight division with his 6'3", 76-inch frame. But again, his ability to mix all of his tools together makes him very hard to deal with. He has a great gas tank as well for this light heavyweight division, which makes him live for the full 15 minutes whenever he's competing against his opponents. And I believe with a couple solid victories, he could find himself nearing the top of the light heavyweight division. But at 39 years old, he's really got to get it going right now. When these guys were originally scheduled to fight each other a couple months back, I did lean on the Maxime Grishin side, and I was a little bit, you know, skeptical in terms of the price tag we were getting that night, which was minus 180. However, the only thing that's changed between the last time they were scheduled to fight each other and now is the fact that Philippe Lenz went out there and disposed of Ovin St. Pru in 49 seconds. That should not change people's perspective to the point that it drops uh, Maxime Grishin from being a minus 180 to a minus 130 favorite now. So I'm going to take advantage of that market increase correction here or that overcorrection, I should say, uh, and, and take the Maxim Grisham minus 130. I think he's the better overall fighter here. I think he's better suited for 205 pounds. I think he can survive the early onslaught from Philippe Lins, put together a better body of work, get some clinch in there, get some grappling going, get some output in terms of volume, and win this fight by decision. Give me Maxime Grishin. Minus 130 is a gift, especially if you were betting him back at minus 180 a couple months ago. Moving down to the bantamweight division, we got 12-5-1 Damon Blackshear taking on 12-2 Luan Lacerda. Starting off on the Damon Blackshear side, he's gone 0-1-1 through his first two UFC fights, starting off his career with a draw against Yusuf Zawal. That was a fight where he had got very good success in the first two rounds with his grappling and landing decent damage. However, it seemed like the short-notice nature of that fight really impacted his gas tank. We saw him slow down in the third round, so much so to the point that Yusuf Zawal was able to get 10-8s or enough 10-8s to have that fight scored as a draw. In his following fight against Fareed Basharat earlier this year at UFC 285, Damon had some decent success with his grappling. He was just unsuccessful in terms of landing enough damage, and that's what Fareed Basharat was able to do, uh, allowing Basharat to get his hand raised by decision that night. Blackshear is an explosive fighter who is one of the, uh, you know, very solid fighters in terms of scrambling and getting his grappling going, and uh, I believe he's a brown belt or a black belt in BJJ, but he seems to suffer from a cardio issue. You know, it's not like he's, uh, you know, Randy Costa or, or uh, who's the other uh, kid, Daniel Lacerda, 
who just falls off a, a cliff after that sixth minute. But he is a guy whose efficiency and effective striking and, and just effective game planning really starts to fall off around that eight or nine minute mark. But he stays in there. He survives normally from what his opponents are able to put on him. And if he's done enough work in the first two rounds, he wins a decision. Otherwise, he ends up getting finished in the second or the third round or loses the second and third round and loses a decision as well. He's a very experienced fighter from the amount of um, high level of opponents he's been facing on the regional scene, which made him well equipped for making his UFC debut when he did. However, I think stylistically, he's been getting screwed a little bit with the type of fighters he's been put up against. Even though he should have won that fight against Yusuf Zalal, that was still a tough fight for him to have his UFC debut with. His opponent this weekend, Luan Lacerda, talk about tough UFC debuts, getting thrown in right against the mo- one of the most experienced fighters the UFC roster has in the bantamweight division. He came up short against Cody Stamen earlier this year in his UFC debut and uh, put on a decent performance in terms of not getting completely outworked or not getting dominated right off the jump. But he was having real trouble in terms of getting a beat on the footwork and the striking game of Cody Stamen that night, which really saw Lacerda chase statement the majority of that fight and he just couldn't get any of his offense going in the third round he finally started to ditch any type of technical uh, work and just really crashed the pocket with aggression tried landing some takedowns which he successfully did unfortunately he was unable to get not enough work done from on top or even hold down Cody Stamen long enough to make any real difference in terms of what the scorecards were going to read which was a unanimous decision victory for Cody Stamen. Luan Lacerda came in, like I said, with a solid 12-1 record to his UFC debut, training out of the Novo Uniao camp, was one of Jose Aldo's main training partners over the last several years, so you know he has a lot of good skills. He's a BJJ black belt who gets the majority of his work done on the mat. I believe his last five or six fights before coming to the UFC, he had all finished by submission. That's how he gets his work done. Solid takedowns, good wrestling, and great top control, eventually waiting for that submission opportunity to showcase itself. And I think we might be able to see Lacerda, uh, you know, now taking a somewhat of a step down in competition from what he had against Cody Stamen in his UFC debut. We might be able to see uh, better things and uh, a better version of Lacerda this weekend. I was very skeptical going into this matchup in terms of studying it, but on the flip side now, I feel pretty good about Luan Lacerda. I feel like he'll be able to land takedowns, and even though Blackshear will be able to get some scrambling opportunities in the early goings here, I think as this matchup starts to progress, we'll see Lacerda be more... Uh, effective and successful in terms of implementing and establishing dominant control on Blackshear in the grappling realm and then eventually finding a submission probably in the latter half of this matchup. Blackshear will have the striking advantage in terms of just straight up power and explosivity but I think that Lacerda will be successful in dragging this fight to the ground and eventually finding that submission. So give me Luan Lacerda via submission. Let's call it round two. Heading over to the women's strawweight division, we got 6-3 Elise Reed going up against 11-8 Jin Yu Fry. Starting off on the Elise Reed side of things, she's been exchanging wins and losses over her last five fights, all which have come in the UFC. And most recently, she's coming off a submission loss to Loma Lukbunmi. Elise Reed is a Taekwondo practitioner with solid leg kicks and deceiving power in her strikes. You know, I'm surprised that she doesn't have a knockout victory on her UFC record to date, but it kind of reminds me of Yan Zhao Nan and, uh, you know, the tenacity in which she used to strike with um, 
you know, in their earlier parts of a UFC career. And then it finally started to pay off in a knockout, especially in her last fight where she was able to finish. I believe it was Jessica Andrade. I think Elise Reed is on the cusp of eventually getting a knockout victory in the UFC if she can maintain her roster spot. But she's showcased, you know, sometimes she showcases decent takedown defense. Sometimes she showcases solid, uh, you know, scrambles as well. Like in the fight against Loma Lupuni, Loma looked to take her to the ground in that first round and Elise Reed did a great job of utilizing her momentum against her and ended up in the top position even though it was Lupuni initiating the takedown that night but Loma quickly got her back in the second round when it was able to tap her out which was a uh, an anomaly of a of a result if I must say so myself considering that Luke Bunmi is known for her Muay Thai she's really rounding out her skills in terms of being an MMA fighter but the fact that she was able to get a submission victory this early into her transition into becoming a full-time mixed martial artist is a little bit of a, a red flag in terms of Elise Reed's submission defense but it's no surprise that that has been the, the weakest part of Elise Reed's game and I'm looking forward to seeing if she can make improvements because if she does make those defensive grab improvements she's very difficult to deal with in the striking realm just ask her uh, previous opponents martinez and mckenna on the flip side Jin Yu fry is coming off a two-fight losing streak now and she's looking to save her ufc roster spot about two weeks after she has turned 38 years old she's a veteran of the mixed martial arts game as she's coming into her 20th professional mma belt but she's competed against high-level competition all over the world she was actually the former Invicta uh, Atomweight champion, a, a division the UFC does not have. Uh, and although, you know, there are a lot of fighters in the UFC that would benefit from an Atomweight uh, division, Jinya Fry, she wants to fight in the UFC. The only way she's going to do so is if she agrees to fight at 115 pounds. But like I said, she's looking to try to save her UFC roster spot. She is now, I believe, 2-4 and four through her six UFC fights. And uh, just not a good look, especially if you're going to be taking your third straight loss in a row. She's a solid all-around fighter, a BJJ brown belt. And her wrestling could use a little bit more work, especially if she hopes to have success on the mat uh, against uh, you know opponents like Elise Reed. Uh, she trains out of Fortis MMA, has a great coach in Safe Sayud to try to devise a solid game plan for her, but it's going to be on her to go out there and try to execute that game plan to full effect. I'm so just off put by this matchup in terms of picking a side here. I am going to go with the striker here in Elise Reed that I'm hoping that her footwork, her movement, and the damage that she can accrue on the feet will keep Jin Yu Fry on the outside and unsuccessful in terms of landing takedowns in this matchup. Obviously, if Frey is able to get the takedown here, she can utilize her brown belt and BJJ very effectively and possibly find a submission, which is why I'm actually going to lean with the under two and a half as my best prediction or favorite prediction in this matchup. It's currently sitting at plus 200, so we obviously know the submission opportunity and threat from the Jin Yu Fry side, but I think it's just a matter of time before Jin Yu Fry, or sorry, Elise Reed, eventually gets that first UFC knockout, and I think the striking advantage that she'll have in this matchup, especially the power in which she throws, will be able to catch Jin Yu Fry off guard here and she might be able to knock her out not to mention Jinyu Fry just getting knocked out in her last matchup against Poliana Vienna as well so under two and a half plus 200 I'm gonna take a little bit of a sprinkle on that but I do think that uh Elise Reed is going to be the one who successfully keeps this fight upright and eventually finds a knockout again not a big amount of confidence here I'd feel a little bit more confident in the under two and a half but I'm going to go with the striker here in Elise Reed Next up in the bantamweight division, we have a previously scheduled matchup finally going down between 10 and 2 Daniel Santos going up against 12 and 2 Johnny Munoz. 
Starting off on the Daniel Santos side, he bounced back after an unfortunate UFC debut where he uh, landed, you know, I think it was 20% of his significant strikes against Julio Arce, but he managed to bounce back in an emphatic fashion by finishing John Castaneda in the second round of their matchup. A lot of people were very low on Daniel Santos going into that Castaneda fight. As I remember, there were so many people hitting me up being like, hey, if John Castaneda is not your lock of the night play, you're doing something wrong. And I was like, hey, Daniel Santos is a lot liver than most people are thinking, which is why he's going to be my dog of the night play. And I was more than happy to stand firm on my uh, hill there with Daniel Santos, especially, especially seeing how quickly that fight came together and in terms of you know playing out the way I expected it to. Daniel Santos is a solid, uh, aggressive fighter in terms of just moving forward, throwing big shots, putting the pressure on his opponents, and either knocking them out or being aggressive with his Brazilian jiu-jitsu, taking these guys to the ground and utilizing his submission game. Training out of the same camp as former lightweight champion Charles Oliveira, he almost shows signs of Charles in terms of uh, his aggressive striking style and just complete fighting style. He still needs to make some technical improvements so that he doesn't get hit as much as he has in the past with his striking, but the fact that he just continues to march forward, showcase good durability, and continue to just wade through the fire and throw his shots even in the fight against Julio Arce he was getting lit up by the technically better striker but stayed focused on his goal which was just march forward and put pressure on him but Arce was just too much for him that night however it worked out worked out against a talented fighter like John Castaneda and it showcased that he can still be successful with his style on the flip side with Johnny Munoz, good God was I off on his last fight against Ludwig Shalinian. I know Shalinian was the underdog in that matchup, but I very much underrated the boxing game of Johnny Munoz. To that point, I really just thought he was more so of a kicker with a very good jiu-jitsu game, and he could only have success should he be able to get fights to the mat as the majority of his wins coming by submission. However, he managed to paint a beautiful picture on Ludovic Shalinian's face with his boxing battering him throughout the 15 minutes that fight took place. To me, it seemed as though Shalinian was just a little bit too gun-shy. He wasn't gun-shy in terms of his footwork as he continued to stalk Johnny Munoz that night, but Munoz was the one that was effectively landing damage and throwing his output out there consistently enough to touch up Shalinian, uh, demoralize him, and then eventually win that decision victory. Uh, Johnny Munoz kind of reminds me of John Castaneda and the fact that if he can dictate the pace in terms of the striking, put his punches together and get in his groove, he's going to be very difficult to deal with. But if he can put the pressure on him, he might be able to. He might end up faltering under that pressure, and especially if he's not able to land his takedowns, he might start to lose confidence in himself and start to fall behind and uh, make it difficult in terms of catching up to his opponent. It's crazy to think that Daniel Santos was plus 160-ish to John Castaneda a couple months back. And now here he is closing in as a minus 250 favorite against Johnny Munoz, who had a very good matchup last time around and great performance last time around against Ludovic Shalinian. However, I think that Santos is going to be able to get that respect from Munoz here, crash the pocket, land a lot of big shots on him, and eventually knock him out in this fight. Munoz is obviously live to get this fight to the ground and pull off a submission victory of his own, but I think he's going to struggle in terms of the big power that's coming his way, not to mention the pace, aggression, and forward motion that Daniel Santos will remain in throughout this matchup. Give me Daniel Santos by knockout. Let's call it second round. Moving up to our only heavyweight fight on the card we got 34 and 21 Andre Arlovsky going up against 9 and 5 Dontel Mays 
starting off on the Andrei Arlovsky side. He had his four-fight winning streak snapped last time around as he got submitted by Marcos Hodgerio de Lima in the first round of their matchup. Andrei Arlovsky has shown a propensity to give up or look for the door whenever things get a little bit too tough in the grappling room. He doesn't even try to fight the hands or try to fight the choke as we saw in the de Lima fight and even the Tom Aspinall fight earlier than that. Even if he did end up trying to fight those chokes, I don't know if it would have given us a different result or not, but it just showcases that he's in there to keep fighting, and as long as it stays a striking contest, he'll be more than happy to go out there and strike with his opponent, but when things start to get tough in the grappling room, he wants to look for the exit. But can you blame the guy who is obviously going out there and consistently racking up six-figure paydays because of his name and experience alone, so maybe he just doesn't want to fight a little, you know, harder than he needs to, to, you know, get the win, especially considering at 44 years old, he's probably never sniffing another title shot again. But, He's staying active and we got to give him the respect in terms of taking on all challengers. But at his best, he showcases an educated striking game. And even while moving backwards, he finds the opportunities to crash the pocket, land a couple of big strikes, intimidate his opponent, and then get back out into distance and just wait to do that once again. The Jared Van Dera fight was a perfect example of that where he was able to utilize Jared Van Dera's forward movement against him and then crash the pocket, get punches off, and then get back out into space and then rinse and repeat and win that fight he puts on good output when he feels comfortable and gets into his groove his striking is still there and his durability surprisingly is continuously showcasing that it's not as bad as it used to be 10 years ago when everybody was calling for him to retire uh you know after just knockout after knockout loss that he was suffering on the flip side for Dontel Mades, he's had a very rough two fight skid after or two fight stretch uh, technically, it's a skid uh, after having a two-fight winning streak over Roki Martinez and Josh Parisian. He was everybody's darling going up against Hamdi Abdel Wahab, but unfortunately, he came up short in, in in that fight where we saw him go from an underdog to even all the way up to a minus 180 favorite because everybody thought that Hamdi was a fraud, but Dontel Mays was unable to get off his own game, made a lot of big mistakes in that matchup that cost him that fight, but even though it's a no contest now, everybody knows he ended up taking a loss in that fight. He followed that up with getting completely outworked by Augusto Sakai in the clinch, outstruck, and just completely outworked uh, over 15 minutes, uh, and he ended up losing that fight as well. He's probably fighting for his job in this matchup, but he's a solid all-around fighter. When he gets into his groove, he does a very good job in terms of blending takedowns behind uh, his punches, throwing good combinations, doing good work in the clinch position, and just having a solid all-around fight. I like to call him a, a hybrid heavyweight in the fact that he's comfortable going the full 50 minutes if he needs to. And even though he showcased some cardio issues in past fights, he still is comfortable going the full 50 minutes, especially when he's having success and he's been able to finish guys in the third round like he did against Josh Parisian. He's a very inconsistent fighter, which makes him very tough to be confident in terms of backing and investing in. But when he is on, he is one of the better heavyweights in this division, especially with showcasing a full and complete mixed martial arts game. Man, this uh, this could turn out to be a very ugly fight, but I'm going to end up going with King Kong Dontel Mays in this fight. I think he'll be able to mix it up a lot better than Andre Arlovsky. I think he'll be able to get in on some clinch positions, land some takedowns, do some good work from on top, and make it look good for the judges. The over two and a half is probably where I would put my money if I'm betting this fight at all, which I likely will not be, but I think that Dontel Mays has more tools here. You know, Andre Arlovsky is very reliant on his striking 
putting together combinations, landing opportunistic combinations and shots and taking advantage of just slight lulls in the action. But I think that may as well do a good enough job in terms of tying up Arlovsky putting some damage on him, putting it, uh, putting good work on him that the judges are seeing and eventually taking home a decision victory. Over two and a half, my favorite prediction, but I'm going to go with Dontel Mays to get his hand raised by decision. Heading back down to the bantamweight division, we got 19-6 John Castaneda going up against 18-4 Muin Gafarov. Starting off on the Castaneda side, he's coming off a loss to Daniel Santos, who we just spoke about a little bit earlier, in a fight that he got knocked out in the second round where he just could not get into his groove or get his boxing or wrestling going. Castaneda, before that, was on a two-fight winning streak where he finished both Eddie Wineland and Miles Johns in fights where he uh, showcased what he looks like at his best. He obviously lost his... Uh, UFC debut to Nathaniel Wood by decision in a fight where he got thoroughly outclassed and beaten. But he showcased that he has good knockout power against Eddie Wineland, even in a fight that he was getting kind of outstruck in, if I'm being honest, before he landed the knockout. And then the Miles Johns fight, he showcased good takedown defense, staying on John, Miles Johns in terms of using boxing combinations and doing uh, very good things with his footwork. But that it was the Daniel Santos fight where we saw if you push the pace against him, stay in his face, put punches there, uh, you know, can mix in takedowns or even just put pressure on him with power uh, more than likely he will start to succumb to that power and pressure and eventually get finished he's a solid all-around fighter but I just don't think he does anything exceptionally well which would take him to the next level should he ever you know put together a couple wins to get back into a spot where he fights a high level opponent on the flip side for Muin Gafarov he's making his UFC debut here as the former LFA champion he wanted in his last fight but was uh did not end up uh, defending it obviously because he achieved his dream of making it to the ufc he's on a two-fight winning streak since fumbling the bag back in 2021 losing to chad and helliger on the contender series in a fight where he could not effectively implement his grappling game which is normally what he leans on in his fights that night and helliger did a decent job of scrambling and allowing uh you know or, or allowing himself to win the fight by continuously making Gafarov work from that top position, working back to his feet, and then landing the more damaging blows in the striking realm. But since that fight, Gafarov has improved his striking game and done a very good job in terms of learning to blend in his takedowns a little bit better behind his uh, behind his striking game. He's finished both of his last two opponents, and the last one, I believe it was due to a uh, spinning heel kick to the body, which was a beautiful way to finish his opponent and also win the LFA champion, uh, the LFA title, I believe it was, for this bantamweight division as well. Uh, he's a very talented fighter out of Tajikistan, which is a region in the world that is starting to get a lot of love from the UFC as we actually have two fighters of uh you know from Tajikistan actually competing on this card and making their UFC debut not to mention Nurullo Algev who also made his debut earlier this year emphatically by getting a win over um why is his name escaping my face? Rafael Alves, which is a great performance for him. But Gafrov is a great addition to this UFC roster. And I think that this is a great first matchup for him to showcase that and hopefully put on a, a W and extend his winning streak to three now. I think Muin Gafarov is an improved version of what we saw from him on the contender series a couple of years back, which is why I'm going to lean with him in this matchup. I know he's the slight underdog here, and I think he is probably one of the better underdogs on this card. 
Castaneda might be the better technical striker here, but I think he's going to struggle with the blend that we're going to see from Gafarov. And what I mean by that is the striking and grappling from the improved technical striking that we've seen from Gafarov over his last couple of fights to that grind with the wrestling and the grappling that we know we can he can put on his opponents. I know Castaneda is a solid wrestler in his own right, but I think he's going to struggle with that forward pressure and that constant just relentlessness from the Gafarov side that's going to allow him to make it look better for the judges and then win this fight by decision so give me Muan Gafarov in his UFC debut to make good and uh, change the image that a lot of people had from him from that Chad and Heliger fight give me Muan Gafarov by decision the prelim portion of the card is headlined by a welterweight bout between 17-3-1 Abubakar Nurmagomedov going up against 23-7 Alizio Zaleski Starting off on the Dagestani side here with Abubakar. He's on a two-fight winning streak since dropping his UFC debut to David Zavada. Abubakar has not been that active in the UFC since joining the promotion, as this will only be his fourth fight since the end of 2019 when he did join the promotion. It seems like he has no intentions on really making a run in the welterweight division to get into contendership or even earn himself a title shot considering the lack of activity throughout his UFC career. He's 33 years old, but on this two-fight winning streak, if he continues getting some dubs, he might actually put himself into that contention. But the lack of activity from him and the lack of buzz, even with the last name Naraga made of, makes it very difficult for it to for the UFC to put him in a position to eventually fight for a title. Last time around, we saw him completely outgrapple and outwork Omar Gadziev in a very solid fight and showcasing of what Nurmagomedov could look like or look like if he has a, a you know a very solid night. Even the fight against Jared Gooden, that was a fight where a lot of people were surprised that Abubakar was able to have as much striking success as he had in the first two rounds with his jab and staying consistently in the face of Jared Gooden that night. It was not until the third round of that fight that he decided to lean on his grappling to cruise to a decision victory that night, as a lot of people thought that he needed that grappling from minute one to win that fight against a... You know, what a lot of people thought was the better striker in Jared Gooden. But Abubakar is showing all wrinkles in his game over his last couple of fights, which showcases why he, you know, why he deserves that Nurmagomedov last name, because he is a very solid fighter, especially if he can get into his groove. His opponent this weekend is Lizio Zaleski, is coming off of a USADA suspension that has kept him out of action for over a year and a half. The last time we saw him is that in action was at UFC 267 when he put a complete beatdown on Benoit Saint Denis in that uh, infamous fight that got the uh, the Russian referee uh, pretty much dismissed and never refereeing another UFC fight again. Although I know he's still active on the Russian regional scene, but that night Zaleski nearly finished Saint Denis on numerous occasions, absolutely battering him that night, stuffing his takedowns and just doing great work from on top. Zaleski comes from a capoeira background, but he showcased that he has some good grappling chops when he needs it as well. He showcased that in the Curtis Millinder fight where he took him down almost immediately and submitted him shortly thereafter. He landed crucial takedowns against Alexei Kunchenko to get his hand raised in that matchup as well. And there is a case that he could potentially be in a three-fight winning streak right now had he gotten the decision against Muslim Salikov, a decision that a lot of people expected him to actually get. He's a still a solid all-around fighter and at 36 years old, he really has to keep things going right now, continue the momentum of that Benoit Saint-Denis fight if he hopes to make any noise in this welterweight division. 
I think I'm finally coming around to Abubakar Nurmagomedov, especially since that gaffe that he had in his UFC debut against uh, David Zavada. But I think that this is going to be a good fight for him to go out there, land takedowns, control Zaleski from on top, and grind this fight out on route to a decision victory. Zaleski is still very dangerous, and he'll be the better striker here, maybe from a flashy standpoint. But if Nurmagomedov can get his jab out there, stick behind it, and land some takedowns behind that, I think that's going to be difficult for Zaleski to get a beat on. Again, this fight's closer to a pick I mean, you can do wrong, you know, you can do much worse in terms of taking a Dagestani wrestler like Nurmagomedov at pick em odds uh, than, you know, taking Zaleski, coming off a USADA suspension, coming off such a long layoff. I know Nurmagomedov hasn't been the most active either, but I feel like he has a very uh, reliable game plan and style that he can put the pressure on Zaleski here and take home a decision victory. I love Zaleski. Do not get me wrong. He could potentially pull off a submission here or even a knockout, but I'm going to lean with the more reliable fighter in Nurmagomedov. Give me him to win by decision. Kicking things off on the main card in the lightweight division, we got 16-5 Jamie Malarkey going up against 8-2 Mohamedjan Naimov. Starting off on the Jamie Malarkey side, who's riding a two-fight winning streak after defeating Michael Johnson and Francisco Prado. He comes into this matchup taking on another short-notice UFC num- uh, come up, just as he did in his last fight. But in that last fight, we saw what Jamie Malarkey looks like at his best, blending his striking with his grappling and doing a or putting on a great overall performance against his opponent that night. His opponent that night, Francisco Prado, was a you know a pretty much a, a fighter that likes to go out there, get his opponents out of there early, utilizing his power striking, his athleticism, and his speed to get his hand raised more often than not but Malarkey shut that all down with that striking that pace that pressure and that takedown and it just very look made him look very good made him look like that he could eventually be a contender in this lightweight division which is a far cry from what people expected him from him after that beatdown or at least back and forth war that he had against Brad Riddell in his UFC debut but he's pulled off some solid victories over his last five fights um you know with that Jalen Turner loss sprinkled in there which is a loss that we can you know we can say is passable you know that is one that a lot of people would be like okay you know Jalen Turner is a killer we don't need to give Jamie Malarkey too much flack for that. But, you know, the work that he's putting in with Alexander Volkanovsky and the camps down there is really showcasing in his ability to showcase the full mixed martial arts game. And I can't wait to see how Malarkey continues to develop, especially only being 28 years old. On the flip side, he's taking on short notice newcomer Mohamedjan Naimov. And I just want to quickly clarify here. Tapology has his first name as Mohamedjan, uh, whereas a lot of other places and outlets, I'm seeing it just as Mohamed. So unless the UFC or even Tapology switches it to Mohamed, I'm going to continue calling the guy Mohamedjan. Regardless, I'm going to be going by Naimov just to keep it even easier. He is a fighter that had his shot on the contender series, I believe back in 2020, where he came up short against Colin Anglin in a back and forth fight, but it was Anglin who eventually kept getting the better positions, kept getting the last laugh, and landing more significant strikes, or at least more damaging strikes that look to the to the judges and that gave Anglin the decision and an eventual shot in the UFC with a UFC contract. 
Uh, Naima followed that up loss, uh, followed that loss up with another loss to a future uh, contender series alum, Olivier Morad. Uh, again, a fight where uh, Naimov just couldn't get things going effectively enough with his grappling, and Murad was the one landing more significant strikes over that five-round period. But since that fight, Naimov is in a three-fight winning streak where he's finished two of his opponents and showcasing that he's trying to work on his cardio, trying to work on just being a little bit more effective when he gets his opponents to the ground and being a little bit more methodical in terms of his striking approach. I am questioning his, you know, the level of competition he's been beating on the regional scene, and even in that win against uh, Mudaev or Muduev, uh, however you pronounce that name, uh, that was a decision victory that Naimov had. But he was given up takedowns in that fight, and uh, you know, luckily for him, his opponent slowed down, and Naimov was able to take over in the last half of that fight, landing the more damaging blows to get his hand raised by decision. But it was still a little bit of a question mark in terms of how Naimov would deal with the higher level of competition he's inevitably going to face in the UFC and that's what he's exactly getting in his UFC debut which comes in on short notice against Jamie Malarkey I think the odds on this fight were outrageous I saw minus 600 I'm seeing minus 350 now on Jamie Malarkey now don't get me wrong I think he wins this fight but if you want to go percentage wise you know I put him closer to 65 to 70 percent which is about minus 180 to about minus 230 minus 350 is just outrageous so if you want to talk about value Naimov has the value in this fight but I think that Malarkey, in terms of a prediction, is going to be the side I end up going with. Also, the over two and a half. I can see a lot of grappling situations in this matchup. I can see both guys having success. But I think it's going to be Malarkey who ends up pulling out or pulling ahead later on in this matchup, making it look better for the judges and getting his hand raised by decision. I think he is the better overall fighter here. Whereas Naimov, I think he might be technically a stronger grappler but not by a whole lot like i don't think he's the spectacular grappler he has his own issues in terms of defensively speaking as well and that's where i think that malarkey is going to be able to take advantage of winning this fight by decision heading to the women's flyweight division we got 15 and 4 karine silva going up against 13 and 3 Catlin souza Starting off on the Crene Silva side here, she's on a pretty solid winning streak, including her contender series victory back in 2021, and then the victory that she picked up over Poliana Botelio uh, last year as well via submission. She's one of the few women where I've seen the majority of their fights finishing inside the distance. Out of her 19 professional fights, 18 of them have finished inside the distance the one that went to a decision was her only or one of her few losses on her record, which actually came to Dione Barbosa, who's a pretty bright prospect on the LFA regional scene. Crene Silva loves attacking the guillotine, and I believe she's a, or not a guillotine, but a lot of chokes and a lot of submissions. Uh, and she's a BJJ brown belt as well, so you kind of uh, understand where a lot of her offense comes from. Her striking still needs a little bit of work in terms of technically speaking, but she likes to put a you know solid power on her opponents moving forward, uh, throwing big shots, but it's obvious that she prefers to get fights to the ground and try to look for submissions there. She was getting kind of outstruck by her uh, contender series opponent, Jan, uh, but she was able to find an opportunistic guillotine choke where she latched on with all her might and was able to get Jan out of there with, uh, like I said, with a beautiful guillotine choke. I don't know what her ceiling is, but one thing that we can almost guarantee or at least kind of bank on whenever she fights, fight's not going to decision, but she needs a willing enough dance partner for her to achieve that mark once again. Her opponent, Katlyn Souza, is the former Invicta champion. Actually, actually won that title earlier this year, which earned her contract to the UFC. 
She's, uh, you know, an interesting fighter who's actually competed against Ariane Carnelosi on the regional scene. But a lot of her striking style comes from just a lot of movement and a lot of kicks from distance. It's not often that you see her exchanging with her opponents in the clinch, either with her boxing or even just straight up in tie clinch or anything like that. And then her ground game, that's where it seems like a lot of opponents try to take her to try to take advantage or at least keep her static so that she can't continuously move and just stay on the outside and utilize her kicks. Uh, so her takedown defense needs a little bit of work, but she's doing a great job in terms of staying active enough from her back to create scramble opportunities and work back to her feet so that she can go back to doing what she does best. I'm not completely sold on her skill set as a whole, but I'm interested to see if she's uh, able to implement her very mobile game style or game planning style of just kicking her opponents from distance and staying safe enough that she doesn't get countered or even just taken advantage of in terms of the grappling realm, just based on the fact that she's able to stay so uh, you know squirmy on the mat even when she does get taken down. She's an interesting addition to this UFC roster. I just don't know how long she'll be able to stick around. Now, I know I said that I like the, you know, the violent spot in Kareni Silva fights more often than not, but I think that we're going to see her utilize a grapple-heavy approach, which could see this fight go over the two-and-a-half-round mark. Ketlin Souza is aggressive enough off of her back to keep uh, Silva working, and I think that's going to cause this fight to eat up a lot of minutes and eventually go over. Or it could be just Ketlin Souza utilizing her footwork, utilizing her movement, and kicking uh, Silva en route to a decision victory. I don't like the big chalky number on Karen Sova. I feel like she still has a lot to prove at this level. And even though Ketlin Souza is making her UFC debut here, she has a very tricky style to get a beat on. And I think the over is probably the best way to go. No big confidence here. I'm going to go with Karen considering her higher level of competition and just her aggressive fighting style. And I think she wins this fight by decision over two and a half, probably the best spot. Sticking with the flyweights, but changing genders here. We're going to go with Tim Elliott coming in with an 18-12-1 record, going up against the 12-2 Victor Altamirano. Starting off on the Tim Elliott side, talk about a guy who has had some pretty shit luck over the last several years, or at least last couple of years. Now, he did have a big win in his last fight over Tegiru Lundbekov in a fight that was pretty back and forth, but Tim Elliott was having great success in terms of creating scramble opportunities, even landing takedowns of his own, but landing the damage required for the judges to see that fight in his favor i remember that fight week where a lot of people are kind of ragging on anybody taking a shot on tim elliott saying that oh you know we know that ulan bekov's gonna win we know he's gonna get takedowns we know that elliott's gonna fumble the bag but it was the value hunters and tim elliott betting him as a plus 200 underdog who are laughing at the end of the day Tim Elliott is a veteran of the game coming into his 32nd professional MMA fight, but he has had high level uh, experience throughout his career. He's only 36 years old, and I think he still has a couple of solid years left to give at the highest level. But I think he's still, you know, pretty much in there to, you know, put together a couple of big wins and find himself in contendership pretty soon thereafter. But getting back to the you know unfortunate run that Tim Elliott's been on in terms of his personal life over the last couple of years, the two big things, obviously, the betting scandal with Mr. James Krause and who was uh, pretty much his head coach at the time, and then the uh, news that just came out over the last couple of weeks in terms of his one of his really good friends and training partners and guys that he would go corner and have corner him, Mr. Kevin Kroom was slamming his wife on the low, uh, and unfortunately 
they ended up breaking up, obviously divorcing, and Tim Elliott uh, is now on his own. I believe he's training out of Texas, or at least where he used to be from. But uh, very unfortunate uh, news for Tim, Le- Tim Elliott to find that out about his uh, former wife, Gina Mazzani and his former uh, really good friend Kevin Kroom but I'm sure Tim Elliott is looking to utilize that uh, at aggression and that frustration and being off for as long as he has not to mention the ACL and MCL injury that he had to have surgically repaired rehab from and now finally make his return a year and a half later I'm sure he has a lot of frustration to let out in the cage kind of reminds me of Mackenzie Dern the other week who was going through a custody battle with her child and obviously a um a custody battle for her child and a divorce of her own and she said that she utilized that frustration she was feeling through all of that personal problems and let it out in the cage a lot of people thought it would be a negative thing for Mackenzie Dern but she took that negative made it into a positive and she ended up winning her fight let's see if Tamelia can do the same thing this weekend the opponent this weekend is Victor Altamirano, who currently has a 2-1 record in the UFC. Uh, he is a contender series alum. His last two fights were pretty solid and fun fights. He was able to uh, deal with a little adversity early against Daniel Lacerda and come back to finish him later on in that first round. And then the Vinicius Salvador fight. That was a back-and-forth matchup, but Victor landed some opportune takedowns, got some solid control time and good damage to eventually get his hand raised by decision that night. He has a very solid kicking game, a very mobile kicking game as well in terms of staying on the outside and really just putting together unorthodox striking for his opponents. Uh, but he has very questionable takedown defense, something that I was surprised that Vinicius Salvador was unable to take advantage of. But uh, opponents are able to get Altamoreno down. He does a decent job in terms of throwing up submissions, staying active enough off of his back to disrupt the balance of his opponents. But I think that takedown defense issue is going to be something that bites him in the ass as he continues to take steps up in this flyweight division. As I was speaking about in terms of Elliot's motivation going into this matchup and needing an outlet to let his frustrations out, I think Altamoreno is going to be in for a tough night. I'm looking for a grappa-heavy approach here from Tim Elliott. It mixed in with his unorthodox striking style that could catch t- uh, Victor Altamoreno off guard, but I think that this is a great fight for Tim Elliott to come back to and get a winning streak going, especially after that big win that he had over Tagir Ulenbekov. Look for multiple takedowns, good top control, and even in those scramble positions, I expect Tamelia to come out on top, and I think it won't be too hard for him to get a hold of Altamoreno, who normally has good footwork and a good kicking game, but I think in the smaller cage, it's going to be difficult for Altamoreno to traverse it and utilize the style, and I think he's going to struggle with that wacky, awkward style that Tim Elliott brings to the table. So give me Tim Elliott by decision, and I feel pretty good about it too. Moving up to the lightweight division, we got 35 and 17 Jim Miller going up against 19 and 6 Jared Flash Gordon. Starting off on the Jim Miller side, he continues to add to his UFC records of most UFC fights. I believe this is going to be his 42nd UFC fight. You know what? Rather than just guessing it, I'm just going to get the number right here for you guys. Uh, This would be his 42nd UFC fight, which is already a UFC record. And he can continue to add to his other record of uh, most UFC wins, which currently sits at 24. Uh, He can extend that to 25 if he gets his hand raised this weekend. 
He was unable to do so last time around where he lost a decision victory or decision to Alexander Hernandez. He started off very good with some good pressure, good power, and just landing some decent shots on Hernandez. But it was Hernandez who was able to put together better strikes, good volume, good consistent output, and good enough damage for the judges to score the second and third rounds for Hernandez for him to get his hand raised that night. That snapped a three-fight winning streak that Jim Miller was on, where he finished all three of his opponents, Eric Gonzalez, Nicholas Mota, and Donald Cowboy Cerrone, where he was able to exact his revenge in terms of Cerrone defeating him years and years ago uh, as well. Jim Miller, BJJ Black Belt, we know he has a nasty jiu-jitsu game when he's able to get the neck of his opponents. He also has some deceiving power in his hands, but I just think that the, that power translates when his opponents uh, are, are a little bit lackadaisical in terms of their striking defense and really not seeing the power coming their way. We know Jim Miller really starts to fall off in terms of his efficiency later in fights, and that's where he's able to you know, really struggle in terms of uh, like the fight against Joe Selecki. He had good success in that first round but the second and third rounds he just couldn't get anything going ended up getting controlled by another BJJ player uh, like I said in Joe Selecki so to me it seems like Jim Miller is one of those guys that needs to get that success off early or he starts to fade later in fights and ends up losing in decisions his opponent this week in Jared Gordon is coming back after five weeks uh, after having that unfortunate no contest against Bobby Green where an inadvertent head clash caused a knockout victory for Bobby Green luckily the review officials that night were able to reverse the decision uh, or at least reverse the result pretty much right before the official result was made and they called it a no contest. George Gordon was doing good work in that fight, especially considering he was a pretty big underdog. He was landing some big shots against Bobby Green, but I think it was inevitable that Bobby Green was going to take over the longer that that fight goes. But Jared Gordon, you know, he's had some unfortunate last two fights, even the fight before the Bobby Green fight. He got robbed of a decision that many people, probably 95% of the people in the world outside of the uh, Liverpool population uh, scored his fight against Paddy Pimblett uh, in his favor. Um, you know, that was a fight where he was an underdog. A lot of people expected Paddy Pimblett to get him out of there pretty quickly. But Jared Gordon did a really good job overall in terms of implementing his striking, his clinching, and his grappling into what should have been a unanimous decision victory for him. But that was not to be that night. But Gordon, 34 years old, showcases that he can still fight at a pretty high level, put good pressure and pace on his opponents. He really puts uh, a lot of volume on his opponents, mixes in his striking, his clinching, and his uh, grappling very well bjj black belt as well he's still a very high level fighter and i think that uh you know i don't think that the loss to bobby green you know a month and a half ago will have too much of an indication in terms of how this fight will go um but yeah i think gordon is still a high level opponent that is a very tough out no matter who stands across from him uh on a whenever he steps in the cage now, I have a lot of confidence on the Jared Gordon side, and I have even more confidence if it wasn't for that five, uh, you know, five-week layoff between what he had uh, against Bobby Green. But like I just said, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on the outcome of this matchup. I think Gordon will do a good enough job in terms of tying up Jim Miller, putting the pace and pressure on him, that Miller won't be able to land a big enough shot to take advantage of the possibly compromised Jared Gordon here. I like Gordon to just go out there and do work. Do what he did to Leonardo Santos in terms of just putting forward pressure on and just putting output and volume that Jim Miller may not be able to keep up with. We saw, and I've always 
he's harped on it. Jim Miller starts to fall off in terms of efficiency as fights get into deeper waters, and that's where Jared Gordon ends up thriving. Even though Gordon seemed to gas out against Grand Dawson a couple fights back, I think he showcased in subsequent fights that he can go out there and put pressure on his opponents and keep that pace up and even kick it up a notch into deep waters. And that's why I think that Jared Gordon will shine in this matchup and bounce back and get a decision victory. We move to the featherweight division for the co-main event of the evening, which goes down between 20 and 13 Alex Caceres and 28 and 14 Daniel Pineda. Starting off on the Caceres side, he's coming off an emphatic knockout victory over Julian Arosa, where he set up a beautiful head kick to turn out the night, turn out the lights and the night of Juicy J Arosa. That snapped a winning streak that actually Caceres had put together, or sorry, the fight before that snapped a winning streak that Caceres had put together, where he lost to Sadiq Yusuf, where Yusuf was able to put together a much better game plan over 15 minutes to get his hand raised. Alex Caceres, at his best, utilizes his weird karate style to put together the perfect punches and he has a very uh, sneaky submission game as well which he showcased in the austin springer and sungwu Choi fights uh the latter of which he was a pretty big underdog in which he was able to pull off the upset he's very solid in terms of uh, being a very good veteran you know he's 34 years old i don't think a lot of people expected him to be in the ufc for as long as he has been after his ultimate fighter stint where he lost in the, the opening round of their uh of the show but his a combination of personality and success inside the octagon has managed to keep his job in the UFC and he's still out here in 2023 getting some dubs and that's potentially on the table for him once again over at the Daniel Pitt Pineda who is his opponent this weekend. Pineda is coming off a submission victory in his hometown or at least home state of San Antonio Texas last time around where he defeated Tucker Lutz. He utilized his aggressive striking and grappling style to put the pressure on Tucker Lutz, eventually opening up a submission that he was able to take on home with him. The fight before that was a no contest to Andre Feely where he got inadvertently eye-poked and was unable to continue, but he was getting dropped left, right, and center throughout that matchup, and he eventually would have lost that fight should that fight have gone on any longer before that he dropped the bag as a favorite over cub swanson where he got knocked out in the second round of their fight he's a very exciting and fun fighter as the majority of his fights normally finish inside the distance i believe the exact number in terms of fights he's had over 40 fights as a veteran now uh i don't actually i'd say 90 percent of his fights uh, confidently 90 percent of his fights have finished inside the distance whether it's him going out there and getting the finish or him going out there and getting finished himself it's always an entertaining fight when he takes center stage and i think that's why the ufc has decided to give him this co-main event spot especially against a veteran like alex bruce bruce leroy caceres Violence is the spot here, as is with most Daniel Pineda fights, and I think that Caceres is the perfect dance partner here for that to come to fruition. I'm expecting the cleaner and more technical striking of Caceres to open up a club and sub opportunity for him here over Daniel Pineda, not to mention the aggressive style of Pineda leaves a lot of openings for a guy like Alex Caceres to take advantage of. I'm not big on the money line here on Caceres, but I am big on the fight doesn't go to decision, which I think is opportunistic for both guys here. Whether it's Pineda getting a club and sub of his own, or even Alex Caceres landing a club and sub, or even just a club and drum, I think somebody ends up getting the finish here. I'm going to go with the Bruce Leroy side here. I think he finds uh, probably a head kick submission, or a head kick and then rear naked choke submission in the second or third round of this matchup. But I love the fight doesn't go to decision. Expect violence in this co-main event slot, which is why the UFC has decided to put it in this co-main event slot.
time for the main event of the evening and it goes down in the flyweight division between 24 and 10 kai kara france going up against 16 and 1 amir albazi starting off on the kai kara france side here he's coming off a knockout loss to brandon moreno in a fight that he was challenging for the interim flyweight title at the time that was a rematch of a fight that uh, Brandon Moreno was actually de- able to defeat Kai Carfrance back a couple years ago. But Kai did showcase some solid improvements in his fight against Moreno and was even having success in the same round he eventually got finished in. That snapped a three-fight winning streak that saw Kai Carfrance finish Rogerio Bontarine, Cody Garbrandt, and go to a decision against Askar Askarov, which was probably the best performance of his UFC career. In that fight against Askarov, he stuffed all the takedowns that he was coming back, that was coming back his way, and he utilized his superior striking to destroy Askarov on the feet and win that fight via decision. We know Kai is a great striker with good explosiveness, good knockout power, and the ability to just put combinations together and hurt his opponents on the feet. But it's really his defensive grappling improvements that have allowed him to keep fights in the upright stance where he's able to be most successful and implement his game at his best. I think that's what he needs to continue to approve on, even at 30 years old, which is surprising considering he has 34 freaking fights. Uh, if he can continue those defensive grappling improvements, this guy will find himself in a title shot once again because he is very talented has a lot of power and is a very skilled opponent and uh, his opponent this weekend Amir Albazi 16 and 1 very impressive record for a guy who's making his uh, debut in terms of a uh, main event fighter for the UFC he put together four straight victories under the UFC banner to get this slot against uh, Kai Car France but he's had a handful of fights against high level opponents that have fallen off He's been scheduled to fight other big uh, guys in the past, like Alex Perez. Uh, there's one more name that's kind of escaping me at the moment that I'm just going to... Oh, Brandon Royvelle, Tim Elliott, O'Day Osborne. He's scheduled to fight all these guys, but all those fights eventually fell through. But luckily, the UFC is rewarding him with his main event slot against Kai Car France. And a win here could really vault him into title contention, especially with the squeaky clean 17-1 record. Again, if he gets his hand raised this weekend. He has a grapple-heavy approach where he has very good wrestling, very slick jujitsu as well, which allows him to get these submission victories he's getting. And his striking aim is definitely starting to catch up to the rest of his game, which is very high level in my opinion. He started off his career with the London Shoot Fighters camp over there in England, but has recently been calling Extreme Couture home, where he's been getting in good training with solid training partners and great coaching as well. I think this kid is very talented and a very bright prospect. We'll see if this weekend is him biting off more than he can chew or if it's the progression he needed to get to the next level. With the defensive grappling improvements from Kai Car France, I feel like I'd be doing myself a disservice if I did not predict him to win this fight. Amir Albazi is making striking improvements, do not get me wrong, but I think he's going to struggle in terms of implementing his grapple-heavy approach, which will allow Kai Car France to land the better shots on the feet and possibly even find a knockout later on. However, I think with the uh, you know the consistent grappling attempts that we're going to be seeing from Albazi, that will slow down this fight, which will allow Kai Car France to just pick him apart. You know, there might be two or three minutes where Albazi controls him in certain spots, but I think he's going to have a hard time holding him in those spots, which will allow uh, Kai Car France to get back out into distance, land big strikes of his own, maybe land a big knockout. But I fully expect this fight to go over the three and a half round mark, which is where the total is set. And I see this fight going the distance. 
I like Kai Car France. I think he's going to be the one landing more damaging blows for the judges to score this fight in his favor. And as much as I want Almir Albazi to win, I feel like this experience and even in a loss is going to be very valuable for him, do very well for him in terms of his young career so that he can eventually make that trajectory even further the next time he makes an ascent up the ladder and that could pay off for him for eventually winning a flyweight title but he's still very young in his career and considering the experience difference that he's going up against here in Kaikar France who again he's only 30 years old as well and has a plethora of experience and wealth of experience under his belt I just think that this is a bad timing for Albazi to be fighting a guy like Kaikar France so give me Kai by decision more damage better striking good defensive grappling Give me Kai Car France. And there you guys go. Breakdowns for all 13 fights on this UFC Vegas 74 card. Hope you guys enjoyed the show as always. Make sure you guys smash that like and subscribe below if you haven't already. Again, check out the Patreon to support your boy a little bit more. Link is in the description below. I'll also have Cage Warriors 155 fully broken down for the Patreon folks. So if you want a little extra action on this weekend's card, not just the UFC, but Cage Warriors, the Patreon is where you'll be able to find that information. And if you are one of those guys that likes doing your own research, doing your own predicting and breaking down fights, the MMA Fight Archive is exactly what you need to make your life that much easier. Check out the free trial if you want, or take that one last spot on the pipe pioneer tier to save yourself 25% off the lifetime of your subscription i promise you won't unsubscribe after subscribing because you're going to love what you see on there and how much easier it makes your life all right love you guys appreciate you guys i'll be back tomorrow for the lucky trinity which i might be changing up due to popular demand to people being like hey you are much better than the losing record that the uh lucky trinity is showing you why don't you drop it down to a two-legger rather than a three-legger which is quite hard to hit on a consistent basis uh again not chalk chasing as most people want me to so i might change it up tomorrow stay tuned for that and then obviously on friday i'll be dropping the three best prop bets as well all right love you guys appreciate you guys and i'll see you guys again tomorrow for the free parlay of ufc vegas 74 peace